Welcome to The Word at First Pres. During Lent, we are doing a sermon series called Parables of Jesus, where we examine various parables that Jesus taught during his ministry. The goal of this series is to examine the messages from these parables and how they are asking us to change internally through our spirituality and externally through our behaviors. I hope you enjoy. And now let us continue worship with our first scripture reading. Luke chapter 15, verse 11 through 32. Then Jesus said, there was a man who had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the property that will belong to me. So he divided his property between them. A few days later, the younger son gathered all he had and traveled to a distant country. And there he squandered his property in dissolute living. When he had spent everything, a severe famine took place throughout the country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him to his fields to feed the pigs. He would gladly have filled himself with the pods that the pigs were eating, and no one would give him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired hands have bread enough to spare? But here I am, dying of hunger. I will get up and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me like one of your hired hands. So he set off and went to his father. But while he was still far off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion. He ran and put his arms around him and kissed him. Then the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his slaves, Quickly, bring out a robe, the best one, and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. And get the fattened calf and kill it. And let us eat and celebrate, for this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his elder son was in the field, and when he came and approached the house, he heard music and dancing. He called one of the slaves and asked, what was going on? The slave replied, your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he had got him back safe and sound. Then he became angry and refused to go in. His father came out and began to plead with him. But he answered his father, Listen, for all these years I have been working like a slave for you, and I have never disobeyed your command. Yet you have never given me even a young goat so that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came back, who was devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fatted calf for him? Then the father said to the son, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. But we had to celebrate and rejoice, because this brother of yours was dead and has come to life. He was lost and has been found. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Our second scripture reading today comes from the Gospel of John, chapter 20, verses 1 through 9, and 21, 1, and 15 to 17. 
This is the account of Jesus' resurrection. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the tomb. She ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciples, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. Then Peter and the other disciples set out and went toward the tomb. The two were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent down to look in and saw the linen wrappings lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. He saw the linen wrappings lying there and the cloth that had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen wrappings, but rolled up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture, that he must rise from the dead. After these things, Jesus showed himself again to the disciples by the sea of Tiberias, and he showed himself in this way. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And he said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, Feed my lambs. A second time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said to him, Tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter felt hurt because he said to him the third time, Do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, first I want to start by saying happy Easter. I'm so glad that you could join us online this morning. I remember last year at this time, I was preaching my Easter sermon to an empty sanctuary, and I thought to myself, you know, I never want to have to do this again. And yet, here I am. The great thing is that today, where we are a year from now, we know so much more than we did a year ago. Thanks to the vaccine, we are now looking at a time where possibly we can get back to church sooner rather than later. And I really think that it's wonderful that we can all start to slowly be together again. It's a good thing for science, right? I also think that we have the opportunity with Jesus's resurrection, the celebration of Easter, to look back on the year that was and to talk about how this has influenced us as people, how it's changed us. And I want to begin this morning by telling you a few things that I've learned about myself during the past year. The first thing that I've learned is that I'm actually a much better father when I'm not around my children. This is actually quite true because Prior to the pandemic, I used to be away from my kids, and then I'd come home and I'd be like super dad. I'd be spending all this time with my children. I'd come through the door. They were happy to see me. I was happy to see them. We'd exchange stories about our day. We'd play with each other. We'd rest a little bit. It was great. Then the pandemic comes, and all of a sudden, my confidence in my fathering abilities begins to nosedive significantly because now we're stuck inside and we're around each other all the time, and all of a sudden, they don't really want to spend so much time with me anymore. They're not excited about that. And in fact, they're looking for excuses to get out of the house. So they come to me 
And they'd say, you know, Dad, we're going to go down to the park. And I'd say, well, hold on, let me get my shoes. I'd be happy to join you. And they're like, no, no, that's okay. This was more of an exchange of information rather than a personal invitation. I'm like, are, are you sure? Because I could just grab my things and, and come with you. And they're like, no, no, you, you're good. You stay where you are. Don't bother getting up. And I haven't. I've just sat still for the last 12 months. I'm just like a piece of furniture now. I don't move anywhere. You can just walk past me. You wouldn't even know I was there. The second thing I've learned about myself is that, honestly, I am very, very bad at home improvements. I'm like shockingly bad at home improvements. Everybody during the pandemic, they're trying to fix their house up. I thought to myself, you know what? I'm going to do that too. I'm going to get on it. And I fancy myself the kind of person who's good around the house. Well, apparently, I'm only really good around the house if it requires the motor skills of a five-year-old because anything more than that, and I'm not only useless, I'm actually a liability. Like, I'll make the problem so much worse. We had to patch some drywall in our house, you know, try to fix a hole. And so I thought to myself, you know what I'll do? I'll just watch one of those YouTube videos. And they make it look so easy, right? Like, you know, they have the hole, and then they patch it up, and it looks flawless. Like, you would have never even known there was a hole. And the video lasts five minutes. It's not very long. So I think to myself, how hard can it be? This looks simple. So I start doing what they do, and the hole gets bigger and bigger and bigger until eventually it's so big, it's like two hours later that I'm, like, frustrated, and I just give up. And I go to Courtney. I'm like, look. So you're always talking about how we don't have enough storage space. Have I got a deal for you? We could just hide things inside of the wall, like snacks. We could just keep those away from our kids if we want to. They would never know. It's like the perfect place to hide things. Anyways, I lost that argument. That's not actually the way things went. She said we would call in a professional to be able to fix things up. And so, anyways, we patched it up. And moved on from there. The third thing that I've learned about myself, and this is actually the most important, is that I really miss you guys. I miss you guys a lot. Prior to the pandemic, I had been working very, very hard at the church. There's a lot of things that we were getting ready to do. We were getting ready to launch a capital campaign. We were going to redo the sea wing, the gym, the fellowship hall. We were going to raise a lot of money to get all that stuff in shape. And so we had to Put that aside once the pandemic began. And in fact, interestingly enough, you're going to hear from the Capital Campaign Committee this week. Tomorrow, they're going to start sending stuff out to you because we're going to make some small modifications. I don't want to get too much into that now, but you will hear from them and we're going to get going. Another thing that I was working on during the uh, getting ready for before the pandemic was I was getting ready to go on sabbatical. And so I had to get all these ducks in a row, and I know that many people believe that pastors only work one or two hours on Sunday morning, but I was up until about one or two in the morning every single night preparing for all of this, and I remember thinking to myself, man, I really need some time away from the church. Well, be careful what you wish for, because I definitely got time away. Unfortunately, you all got time away as well. And I thought that during the pandemic, if you know anything about me, I thought that my faith would really thrive under these circumstances because I'm a guy who likes to spend time by myself. I like to be alone. I like to think about all this theology. I like to think about the church. Maybe that's why I'm a pastor, right? So I like to do all of these things. And I thought that during this time, you know what, my faith was really going to grow. Instead, I faltered. And what I 
I came to realize after much reflection is that as a leader in the church, I've come to take for granted that you all are the magic ingredient that brings all of those theological ideas to life. That without you, those are just words on paper. And so perhaps one of the most important things that I have taken away from my time in this pandemic is that Jesus' message is really something that transforms the lived experience. I think prior to the pandemic, I knew that, but I never really appreciated it as much as I do until now. And that's actually what I want to focus on today for this sermon. I want to talk about the lived experience. I want to talk about how Jesus' resurrection, him coming back from the dead, changes our lives here and now. So I want to begin by talking about what happened. We need to talk about the event of the resurrection itself, what occurred. So there was a series of events that kind of led up to this morning. So what happens is on Palm Sunday, Jesus, he goes into the temple, he overturns the tables of the money changers and the sellers of the sacrifices. He is then arrested and he is brought to trial. At the trial, he is convicted of treason against the Roman government. He is then hung on the cross to be executed and then he dies. After he passes away, he is taken off the cross and he is placed in a tomb. Now, what you need to know about tombs, particularly the ones around Jerusalem that you could walk into, is they were extraordinarily expensive. In order to get access to one, your family had to own land, usually with a cave on it, or it had to be carved out. And so either way, it was very expensive to have one of these. Jesus is a very poor peasant he would not have been able to afford one of these on his own. And so the scriptures tell us that it was donated by a wealthy patron, a man named Joseph of Arimathea, a man who clearly believed in what Jesus was doing. So Jesus, he is taken down off the cross and he is placed in this tomb. But what's happening is that the sun is setting when they finally get him to the tomb. And of course, according to Jewish tradition, that is the beginning of the Sabbath. And on the Sabbath, you are not allowed to work, which means that after they get him in the tomb, they cannot complete the Jewish burial rites. That was not possible. They were going to have to wait through the Sabbath all day Saturday until Sunday morning. Now, what's important for you to know or to note is that when the sun rises, it is not Jesus's male disciples who go to see him. In fact, it is Jesus's female disciples who feel it is very important to administer the Jewish burial rites of having him anointed with spices and oils. The implication behind this is that Jesus's male disciples had somewhat given up on him. And so the female disciples, they approach the tomb and the stone has been rolled away and they find that his body is no longer inside. And so I think when a person is going to a tomb and they expect to find a dead body inside and that dead body is not there, I think our assumption is that that dead body has been stolen. But what they come to find is that Jesus is alive, that God has brought him back to life, that he has been resurrected. Now that term resurrection it literally comes from the Greek word anastasis, which literally means to rise up. And although today that term resurrection is almost exclusively identified with Jesus, the fact is this was not true in the ancient world. If we could get in a time machine and go back in time to Jesus' day, what you would find is people were talking about the resurrection all the time. 
And the reason why they were talking about it is because there was this big debate that was going on in the Jewish faith. And they were debating what happens when you die. This is a debate that we are still having to this very day. We talk about it all the time. And there were lots of different theories being thrown around as to what happens to you. So one theory that was out there is that nothing happens to you. That essentially, when you die, you're dead, and that's it. There's no going to heaven. There's no seeing dead relatives anymore. You're just gone. And we can actually see this in the book of Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes chapter 9, verse 5. This is what it says. The living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing. They have no more reward, and even the memory of them is lost. Whew, that is rough. That's rough. But that was one line of thinking at that time. Another line of thinking is that when you die, you end up going to a place called Sheol. Now, Sheol is essentially the Jewish version of Hades. And Hades, of course, is found in Greek mythology. Now, the fact is, Sheol is not much of an afterlife. And you can see this. It's actually mentioned many times throughout the scriptures. But let's take this verse from Psalm. Psalm 6.5 is what it says. For in death, there is no remembrance of you. In Sheol... Who can give you praise? Now, this is an afterlife, but again, as I said, not much of one. And so what I want you to take away from both of these scriptures, Ecclesiastes and Psalms, is that for the authors of the Old Testament, and the Old Testament was written several hundred years before the New Testament, they didn't really have a very strong concept of afterlife. For them, it was more concerning what happened to you in this life. That was their focus, was really here and now. But, if you fast forward to Jesus, and of course, a little bit after Jesus is when the New Testament is written, then you find that there's a new theory being bandied about. And this theory is that at some point in time, God is going to reassemble your body into a new person, which I know might sound kind of strange, but this is the theory of resurrection. So, the reason why they thought this and the reason why this was an idea that was being thrown around is that what you have to appreciate is that the Jewish people of that time, they didn't really believe in a soul. So today, how we think of it is that you die and your soul separates from the body and the soul goes to heaven. But they didn't have that idea at this time. And so for them, for the Jews at that time, if you wanted to have an afterlife, you had to physically come back to life. So an afterlife literally meant an afterlife. You had to have a new body so that you could keep on living. Now what's important for you to also know is that this was not a universal idea that everybody accepted. Some Jews believed in the resurrection, other Jews did not. And it's just like today, everybody's debating. Nobody really knows, so it was kind of up in the air. But for those Jews who did believe in the resurrection, what they thought was it was going to be a future event, something that was going to happen in the future, and God was going to bring everyone back from that. Every human being who had ever lived would be brought back and placed in this new body, and this new body was indestructible, could live on forever. Now, that probably sounds a lot like a soul, doesn't it? The way we think of the soul. The body dies, and the soul can just live on forever. But they thought of this in physical terms, in terms of a physical body. So this brings us back to Jesus and his resurrection. Jesus dies, he's brought back from the dead, he comes back. And so for those who witnessed Jesus' resurrection, what they thought was, was this was proof that the theory of resurrection was real. 
And so they came to believe that Jesus was an example of what was going to happen to all of us. That because Jesus was able to overcome death, we one day will be able to overcome death. Now this is the traditional way that Christians think about the resurrection. And so the whole idea behind celebrating Easter, what we're here to do today, is that it's a reassurance that this life is not all there is. That we will one day be able, after we die, to come back and have a new life. Now I will tell you that for me personally, this is just for me, I find the traditional Christian approach to Easter to be a bit one-dimensional. Because to me, if the whole point of being here is just to talk about how we're going to have life after death, what happens to us after we die, I think we're kind of missing the larger meaning and purpose behind the whole concept of Jesus' death and resurrection, what that's trying to help us to understand about the world and life and God. And to help you kind of clarify what I mean by this, I want to go back to that scripture that T.C. read at the beginning of the service. So T.C., he read the scripture about the parable of the prodigal son. It's a very famous scripture that Jesus talks about, a very famous parable. And let me give you a little bit of the backstory on it. I want to go through it again so that you kind of know what's going on. So there are three important characters in this parable. There's a father and two sons. And the younger son, he comes to his dad and he says, I would like to have my inheritance now. If you know anything about inheritances, an inheritance is something that you get when somebody dies, right? They die, they leave you something. So when the younger son goes to the father and says, I would like to have my inheritance now, what he's saying is, I don't really care about you. I only care about your money, and I wish you were dead. Now, practically, to grant such a request would be very, very complicated. He's the second son, which means he gets a third of everything that the father owns. And so this would require the liquidation of land and assets. This is a process that could be quite complex for a family of means. For the people who are listening to this parable, when Jesus is telling it, For them, when they hear that this request is made, they would immediately understand that this would cause irreparable damage between the father and the son. That a sense of schism would happen between them and that he was cutting himself off from the family. So the younger son, he gets his inheritance and he goes off to a foreign land where he ends up indulging his every desire. He lives what we call the party lifestyle. So he eats as much food as he can, He drinks as much alcohol as he can. He sleeps with prostitutes and he gambles away his inheritance until one day he runs out of money. And facing starvation, he ends up going to work for a pig farmer. Now, if you know anything about Judaism, you probably know that the Jewish people do not eat pigs. It's not kosher. They see them as dirty beasts. And so the fact that he's now working for a pig farmer, they would see this young man as getting his just desserts. And in the scripture, it says, when he came to himself, we're going to talk about that in a second. When he came to himself, he realizes that his father's slaves, they eat better than he does. And so he resolves that he's going to go back home. He's going to beg his father's forgiveness. And he's going to become one of his father's slaves. So he starts making his way back home. And he's anticipating What's going to happen when he meets his father again? Because the last time he saw him, he said, I wish you were dead and I just want your money. So he's anticipating an icy cold reception. But when he's a ways off, the father sees him coming towards him. 
And rather than be angry, the father runs out to the son and he embraces him. He hugs him close. And the younger son, he he tries to make his case for why the father should forgive him. He's trying to plead his case. But the father doesn't seem to be listening. He calls to one of his slaves. He says, come on over here. And he says, I want you to get my finest robe and put it on my son. And I want you to kill the fatted calf. We're going to have a celebration. For this son of mine was dead. And now he is alive again. He was lost and has been found. Now what's important for you to understand about this parable is that the father in this story represents God. And what most people don't appreciate entirely about this story is that this story, this parable, is a resurrection story. Think about it for a moment. You have this young man, and he only cares about himself. He is totally self-absorbed. He doesn't care about anyone else. It doesn't matter to him who he has to hurt to get what he wants. He's willing to sever the most important relationships in his life in order to serve his wants, needs, and desires. And in his mind, the way he's thinking is, if I can do the things that I want to do the way that I want to do them, if I can be selfish, then I will find a fulfilling life. And down the road, that eventually leads him towards destitution. Now, this young man, he was not physically dead like Jesus was. But spiritually, emotionally, on the inside, there was nothing alive. And so when he loses all of his money, he comes to have this moment of recognition when he hits rock bottom. He starts to think to himself about what he's done, and he realizes that he squandered the most important treasure in his life, and it wasn't his money. The most important treasure in his life that he squandered was the love of his family. And when he comes to himself, he has this realization, and he kind of has this moment in his heart where it reignites that spirit, where he realizes the love that he's lost. And so when he returns to his father, He goes back seeing the error of his ways. And how does the father react to seeing the son? Does the father reject the son? Does the father turn the son away? Does the father say, you are not welcome here? You asked for your inheritance before I was even dead. You had your chance. Now leave because I don't love you anymore. No, he does not say that. The father He opens his arms. He welcomes the son back. For this son of his was dead and now he's alive. He was lost and has been found. What Jesus is trying to help us to understand as a result of this parable, what he's trying to teach us is that central to God's being, core to the character of who God is, is unconditional love. And what this means is that no matter what we do, no matter our actions, no matter how violent and sinister they might be, the fact is that will never prevent God from loving us. That's why we read that part from the Gospel of John. Peter turned his back on Jesus. He turned away from Jesus. This is the guy who he was supposed to love, and yet at the end, When Jesus comes back, what he does 
is he asks him, do you love me? Again and again and again. And the fact is, Jesus, he ends up loving him anyway. He embraces him. And so the whole point of the parable is that you just have to walk through the door. You have to come back. The door's always open. You have to come back. And when you walk through it, you will find restoration. Now, to me, that is what resurrection is all about. That's the beauty of the story of the resurrection. So to me, when I look at Jesus' story, what it says to me about the here and now is that you can be dead on the inside. You can essentially be a walking corpse. And God's love can bring you back to life. And this is something that, honestly, we need to hear now more than ever. This is the most relevant in many ways this story has ever been because so many of us right now What I see is we are alive to the touch, but on the inside, we are broken people. We are not whole. What this pandemic has done to us is it has caused us great suffering. We have been hurt as a result of what has happened to us, to the people around us. We've watched so many people suffer and die, lose their jobs, their homes. So much has happened and it has broken our spirits and we are in need of restoration. And that's what God's love can do for us. And that's what the parable of the prodigal son is all about. I mean, think about it. The parable of the prodigal son When this young man is broken and hurting and lost and alone and he doesn't know what to do, the father is there waiting to welcome him back. And that's what this is about. God is there when you're broken and hurting and you just have no idea where to go. God is there to put the pieces back together again. The fact is that all you have to do is walk through the door. And so if you take nothing else away from what I've said this morning, if you remember nothing else from this Easter sermon, I hope you will remember this, which is that God wants to help you heal. God wants you to be resurrected. God wants you to experience life after death. God wants you to experience life after the pandemic. All you have to do is come home. The door is always open. You just have to walk through it. Happy Easter and amen. Thanks for listening. And if you want to learn more about First Presbyterian Church of Arlington Heights, please visit www.firstpresah.org for more information on service times, directions, and to learn more about the First Pres family of faith.